Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me this morning to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. There were some children who were asked to write down their thoughts about death. And this is what a few of them said. There was a little girl named Gilda, eight years old. And she said, when you die, they put you in a box and bury you in the ground because you don't look too good. (laughs) Another little girl named Stephanie, nine years old, she said, doctors help you so you won't die until you pay their bill. She doesn't know the half of it, does she? (laughs) There was another little girl named Marsha, also nine years old. She said, when you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher is there too. (laughs) And one more, there was a little boy who responded. His name was Raymond, 10 years old. He said, a good doctor can help you so you won't die. A bad doctor will send you to heaven. (laughs) Well, on a more serious note, I am glad that when it comes to death, man does not have the final word. Aren't you glad of that? God has the final word, and 2,000 years ago, God had the final word over sin and over death when Jesus rose from the grave. We've seen a lot of death this past year. I don't know if you heard or if you've noticed, but in the year 2020, this was the first time in our nation's history that there were more than 3 million deaths recorded, and that was a 15% increase from the year before. For a lot of us, for a lot of people here, this was personal. For me, it meant the loss of my aunt, who really, to me, was more like a second mother. It meant my dad died for some of you it was a close family member for some of you it was a close friend but all of us have been touched in some way the question for us this morning is what does God have to say about it well in the book of Acts chapter 2 Peter stood up and he preached this famous sermon And yes, in case you're wondering, this is the same Peter who less than two months earlier denied three times that he even knew Jesus. And yet, here he is, again, he's had an encounter with the risen Lord. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter stands up at this great festival called Pentecost, and he preaches this sermon in Jerusalem in front of thousands and thousands of people. And this is the first recorded sermon in the Word of God after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, guess what Jesus preached on that day? I'll give you a hint. It was not five steps to a better you. Nor did he preach on how to improve your self-esteem. Peter stood up in that sacred moment, and he preached to that crowd about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And because Jesus died and rose again, there are certain things that we can know about him to be true. This morning, I want to share with you four things that the resurrection says about Jesus. Four things that are true because he died and he rose again on the third day. I want you to notice, first of all, that the resurrection is the endorsement of Jesus' life. It is the endorsement of Jesus' life. Let's pick up in this sermon in verse 22. Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Peter said that Jesus was attested by God. In other words, God was at work in Jesus' life in such a way as to prove that he was the Messiah God had promised to send. You remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus back in John chapter 3? He said, no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. Well, what works were God, was God performing through Jesus? Peter mentions miracles, wonders, signs. That word for miracle is the Greek word dunamis. We get dynamite from that word. In other words, God worked powerfully through Jesus. For 33 years, Jesus did exactly what we would expect God to do if God became man. He lived as no man had ever lived. He spoke words like no man had ever spoken. He performed miracles like no one else had ever performed. He loved like no one had ever loved. And Peter said, Jesus did all of these things, notice this, in your midst as you know. Well, how did they know? They knew this to be true because Jesus was not some anonymous person from an unknown place. He was, Peter said, Jesus of Nazareth. He had a hometown. People knew him. Many of them had watched Jesus grow up. And what he did, he did publicly. He cast out demons publicly. When he fed the multitudes, he did it publicly. Healed the sick publicly, raised the dead publicly. No one ever lived a life like Jesus lived. It was because he lived such a life that so many people in so little time were convinced that he had, in fact, risen from the dead. Maybe you've heard it said, Jesus had no servants, but they called him master. He had no diploma, but they called him teacher. He had no medical training, but they called him healer. He had no armies, but kings feared him. He committed no crime, but he was crucified. He was buried, but he rose again. Peter begins with the life of Jesus because it is the life of Jesus that gives meaning to the death of Jesus. In other words, if Jesus had not lived this perfect, miraculous life, then his death would have been in vain. Likewise, it is the death of Jesus that gives meaning to the resurrection of Jesus. If he had not died in this way, on the cross, for our sins, his resurrection would not have helped us. 
It is the fact that Jesus lived such a life and the fact that he died such a death that makes his resurrection such good news for you and for me today. You see, every single one of us, at some point, we failed at the test of life. I hope you've noticed that. Some of us have failed more than others. But we've all failed. The Bible says all have sinned, and get this, fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. We all have failed. But the resurrection of Jesus means that the test you failed and the test that I failed, Jesus passed for us. And by placing our faith in him, his perfect score is attributed to us. Our failing score, our F, is exchanged for his A+, plus, so that we can stand in the presence of a holy God. And the resurrection is the endorsement of Jesus' life. Now, something else I want you to notice in this passage. We also see that the resurrection is the validation of Jesus' sacrifice. It's the validation of Jesus' sacrifice. Look at verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Jesus said that Peter was delivered. In this case, to be delivered means to be handed over. God the Father handed God the Son over to the cross. What God would not allow Abraham to do when he would have sacrificed his own son Isaac, God himself did when he gave his only begotten son upon the cross. And notice that Peter says that the cross was the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. The determined purpose. That word determined is the same Greek word from which we get the word horizon. Peter's saying the cross was always on God's horizon. It was always in the mind of God. It was always in the heart of God. He said that the cross was also the foreknowledge of God. That word foreknowledge is very similar to the word prognosis. The cross was God's prognosis and that he declared that this is what it would take, this is the price, would have to be paid for the sin of the world. And folks, this means the cross was not a fluke. The cross was not an accident of history. It was all along the sovereign plan of God. That's why Jesus is called in Revelation the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And I want you to notice something here. The fact that the cross was preordained by God does not alleviate them or us, I would add, of our guilt in the matter. Peter said, you have taken him by lawless hands. Do you realize Peter had kind of the unique situation of preaching to some of the very people who participated in Jesus' crucifixion. I would imagine that some of those who conspired against him were listening to him preach that day. I would imagine that some who shouted, crucify him, were listening to Peter preach this day, and to them Peter is preaching, and he is pleading with them 
even for them to be saved. And notice what he said. God took their lawless hands. In other words, he took all of their evil plans. He took all of their evil deeds, and God caused all of it to work out according to the sovereign plan he had already purposed in eternity past. Here's what the resurrection does. When Jesus rose from the grave, his resurrection proved that God accepted the payment that Jesus made. God accepted his sacrifice on the cross for us. The resurrection, in a way, is kind of like God's receipt showing his acceptance of the price that was paid. I love what Paul said about this in Romans chapter 6, verse 10. He said, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Jesus died once, but he lives forevermore. And notice his point. As long as Jesus lives, as long as that tomb is empty, that means there's nothing for us to add. There's nothing that we have to contribute to the price Jesus already paid. The resurrection is the validation of Jesus' sacrifice for you and for me. There's something else I want you to notice here. A third thing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the demonstration of Jesus' power. And notice this. In this great sermon that Peter preached, one verse is devoted to Jesus' life. One verse is devoted to Jesus' death. Nine verses are devoted to his resurrection. Notice in verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter said, you may have put him on the cross, but God raised him up. In other words, the world gave its estimation of Jesus on Good Friday. God gave his estimation of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And when he did, Peter said that he loosed the pains of death. What did he mean by Jesus loosening the pains of death? That means that Easter Sunday, God rendered death to be a couple of things. God rendered death to be powerless. And he rendered death to be futureless. He rendered death to be powerless over us because for the child of God, all death can do is usher us into the presence of God. And he rendered death to be futureless because one day Jesus will return again. The Bible says his resurrection is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Just as the grave could not hold on to Jesus that first Easter morning, the grave will likewise not be able to hold on to those who have died in the Lord. And one day death itself will cease to exist. I want you to notice something about the way Peter worded his statement in verse 24. And I want you to notice what he did not say. Peter did not say, Jesus 
is stronger than death. Although, amen, that would have been a correct statement. Likewise, Peter did not say Jesus defeated death. Although, again, praise the Lord, yes, he did. But that's not the point that Peter is making here. Notice what Peter said. He said, it was not possible for death to hold him. And believe it or not, that statement is even more powerful. Death was not able to hold on to Jesus. There's a story that is told about a spider that crawled into a cave and there it found a sleeping lion. And like all of the other creatures, the spider was very afraid of the lion, but the lion was asleep, and so the spider thought for a moment, now's my chance to capture him. And so that spider went to work, weaving its web. It worked all night long as hard as it could to make that web as big and as strong as it could possibly be until finally that spider web completely covered up that lion. But then morning came. The lion woke up, gave a big yawn, stood up, and walked out of that cave without even noticing the web. You see, the skill of that spider was no match for the might of the lion. And that web may have trapped a fly or two, but it was no match for the king of the jungle. Likewise, Peter said, death was unable to hold him. Death was unable to hold Jesus because he is the power of the resurrection in himself. He said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Death was unable to hold him because God promised that he would rise from the grave and God cannot lie. And I want you to notice what Peter does. He makes this point, and then he spends a great deal of time in this sermon backing it up using Old Testament scriptures. I don't have time to quote or go into every single verse that Peter quoted in this sermon. But I do want you to notice, in verses 25 through 28, Peter is quoting Psalm 16. Now, Psalm 16 was written by David, and it was a plea for God to deliver him from death and from the grave. And notice what it says in verse 26. Therefore, my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David said in this psalm that Peter is quoting, I can rejoice. I can be glad. I can have hope. How so, David? Because you will not leave me in Hades. Now that word Hades, sometimes it translates hell. Sometimes that word translates 
grave, which is what I believe means here in this case. David said, you will not leave me in the grave. Then he said, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That word corruption simply meant decay. God promised centuries before that he would send a Holy One. He would send a Savior. He would send the Messiah who would die but not remain in the grave. Who would die but he would not decay. It ought to be pretty obvious. When David wrote that psalm, he was not talking about himself. How do we know that? Peter answers in verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter said, let me speak freely. In other words, I'm about to be blunt. He said, we know that David did not write this psalm talking about himself. He's not the one who would die but come out of the grave. He's not the one who would die but not see corruption. We know that because David's still dead. He said David is dead. We all know where his tomb is. You can go visit it if you want to. And so David was not talking about himself. He was writing as a prophet. Peter said David remembered when he wrote that psalm, the promise God had already made to him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God told David that one day a descendant of his would be the Messiah, that he would be the one who would reign forever, whose kingdom would never end. He is the one David was talking about who would die, but he would not remain in that grave. Now let me be blunt. Peter was blunt. I can be blunt too. Peter here is making the point that a dead Savior does not qualify. A dead Savior does not qualify. A Savior who's dead cannot help you, cannot save you. We need a living Savior. Now, what Peter applies in the sermon to David, we can apply to every other religious leader in the world. We can apply to every moral teacher. We can apply to every self-proclaimed prophet, every philosopher of this world. Every one of them died, was buried, and they remained in the grave. Muhammad died, was buried, remained in the grave. Confucius died, was buried, and remained in the grave. Buddha died, was buried, and remained in the grave. Jesus, on the other hand, died. He was buried. But when the women arrived at the tomb on the third day, the angel said, He is not here. He is risen. And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that proves he really is 
who he claims to be. He really can do what he says he can do. He can save you. He can change you. He can give you peace, hope, and joy. He can give you power to live in this messed up world. He can give you the ability to overcome every obstacle the world throws at you today. The resurrection is the demonstration of Jesus' power. One more thing I want you to see from Peter's sermon at Pentecost. The resurrection is the basis of Jesus' exaltation. It is the basis of Jesus' exaltation. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted... To the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Peter said, Therefore, because Jesus is risen, Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is exalted at the Father's right hand? Well, it means that his work of redemption is done. But when we say that he is exalted, that means that he reigns in glory and in majesty. It means that he has all power and all authority. It means that he is in control. It means that he is Lord, that he has the right to be Lord over our lives today. And because Jesus is exalted, the same Jesus who is exalted, who is lifted up, is able to lift you up out of any pit that you're in, out of any situation, any addiction, any habit, any sin that you are in this morning. The exalted Jesus can lift you up as well. And once again, Peter's going to back up what he's saying from Scripture. This time, he quotes a different psalm. This time, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, something you need to know about this psalm, and this verse in particular, this verse is quoted or referenced about 25 times in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament verse. This is it. You know what that means? That means... It must be very important. So Peter's going to quote this verse again. Notice in verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Once again, David cannot be talking about himself because he did not ascend into heaven as Jesus did. David has got to be talking about somebody else. So again, who could David be talking about in this famous psalm? Well, he said, the Lord said to my Lord. That's how he begins. Yahweh 
said to my Adonai, the I am said to my Adonai. Now we know that Yahweh and Adonai are two very common names for God in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. So what does it mean that Yahweh said to Adonai, that the Lord said to the Lord? What it means is that God the Father spoke to God the Son and said, be seated at my right hand until your enemies, all of them, have become your footstool. That verse is about the exaltation of the risen Christ. Now, in Bible days, when it spoke of your enemies being at your feet, that was symbolic, that always represented not just victory, but total victory, complete victory. Peter quotes this verse from this psalm in order to show that God had already said centuries before in his word that one day the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus would come and he would have complete victory over every foe, complete victory over the devil, complete victory over the nations, over this world, and complete victory even over death itself and the victory that Jesus won. He offers to share with you and with me. Peter preached this great message about the resurrection of Jesus, and I feel like I've just scratched the surface. But when he came to the end of his sermon, the Bible tells us that the crowd of people listening to him that day, they just had one question. That's it. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Maybe some of you can relate to that statement right now. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice their question. What shall we do? It's a great question. If Jesus really died, and he was really buried, if he really rose again, if he's really exalted, what shall we do what should my response to that be? And Peter answered that question as simply as one can. He said, repent and be baptized. That word, repent, it's a religious word that we use a lot in church, but it just means to turn around. And anytime you turn around, you're doing two things. You're turning away from one thing, and you are turning to something else. In this case, to repent simply means you turning away from your sin, turning away from the past, turning away from this world, turning away from yourself, and even from your own rights. And it means turning towards Christ recognizing that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the way, 
the truth, the life, turning to him, acknowledging that he did what he said he would do. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. Turning to him, acknowledging that because he died, because he rose, he is exalted, he is Lord over the universe, and repenting means that you declare that Jesus is Lord or master or king over your life as well. Now, Peter said, repent and be baptized. He includes baptism here, not because the waters of baptism are what saves you. And by the way, if I had more time, we could go even deeper in this verse to explain that. There are many other places in the Word of God that makes that very clear. But Peter did not hesitate to mention baptism alongside repentance because Peter was assuming correctly that if a person indeed repented of their sin and repented in faith towards Christ, that person will be willing to show it, to back it up, to demonstrate it by being baptized. A few verses later, the Bible says that everyone in his crowd who heard and received his message that day were baptized about three thousand people but i want you to think about what peter is saying here he said that the one who repents and of course that person will be baptized what do they receive he said the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the holy spirit the spirit of god will live inside of you giving you the power to do what you could never do otherwise, to be who you could never be otherwise. But I want you to to notice the point here. He's preached this great sermon about the resurrection. They ask this question, and he gets down to the very end. This is the main point. This is the takeaway. This is what he wants to leave them with. He says, repent and be baptized. For what? For the remission of sins. So here it is. Because Jesus lives, you can be forgiven this is his logic this is where peter has been taking us throughout the sermon to this point because jesus lives he says you can be forgiven say that with me because jesus lives you can be forgiven this time we're going to put it in the first person and say i because jesus lives I can be forgiven. This is the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Maybe you came here today and you're not so proud of some of the things you've done. You're not sure if God could ever forgive you. I'm here today to tell you the empty tomb means you can have an empty slate. The empty tomb means you can have new life because jesus lives yes you can be forgiven you join me for a moment as we pray and here's what i want to do i realize that for many of you what i've shared with you this morning is not new many of you have heard this and believed it from long ago and for that Praise the Lord. 
Every day is a day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But maybe for some of you, this is either new, or maybe you've heard it, but there has not been that Acts 2.38 moment in your life when you repented. And so here's what I'd like to do. As we close this message in prayer, I just want to take that concluding statement of Peter's and just turn it into a prayer and invite you to pray that prayer with me. And if that's you, if there's never been that moment where you repented, that moment when you were saved, I would encourage you just even now to pray this prayer and say, Heavenly Father, I have sinned. I've done things I'm not proud of. I've broken your law. But I thank you that Jesus died for me and rose again. And therefore, I repent. As best as I can, with what I know, I turn away from my sin. I turn away from my past. I turn away from the old way of doing life, from this world, even from my own rights. And I turn to you. I turn to you recognizing that Jesus is who he claims to be, and that he did what he said he would do, believing that he died, he was buried, and he rose again. And one day he's coming again. And therefore he is exalted. He is Lord. And I declare Jesus as Lord of my life right now. Thank you, God, for being willing to save a sinner like me. Thank you for saving me, for forgiving me even now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.